Hello, welcome to FiresideFileMaker.com, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. Hello, I'm Michael Richard, and welcome to another edition of Fireside FileMaker. We have a guest tonight, a very special guest, Alexi Folger, who some of you, a lot of you will know. I've never met Alexi. I've seen her at many DevCons, and my impression of her is that she is moving at the speed of light at all moments of the day and night. And I don't know whether that's an accurate impression, Alexi, but that's mine of yours. And joining us today, in addition to Alexi, is John Mark Osborne. Hi, my name is John Mark Osborne, and I've known Alexi for quite a long time. Uh, not recently, but in the, her early FileMaker days, and we'll, we'll get into that later. But I want to welcome her to the show um, and thank her for coming. And this is Mark La Rochelle. I am uh, also a fan of Alexi, and I think primarily it was I think it was my suggestion to have Alexi on the show, if, if I'm not mistaken. And I think the reason for that is because she's has such a varied career, both being an employee of Claris slash FileMaker back in the day. She owns her own business as well as you know she works with several partner firms. So she's been there, done that, seen it all. And I thought wow, this would be a person that we really want to hear from. Well, thank you, guys. God, with all of those introductions, I think we should just call it a success and <laughs> quit right now. No, just kidding. So I'm Alexi Folger. Um, I'm sure before the end of this podcast, you'll be able to at least approximate my age. So I'll just get it over with and say that I've been using FileMaker since 1988. Um, we will get into some of the details, I'm sure, along along the way here. Um and Michael, I'm sorry I've never gotten to meet you in person, um, but I would say your your sense of me is is quite accurate. Uh, the only problem with all those previous DevCons is with the FileMaker logo. It's like having a target on your back, and it's all talking all day long, and you don't always get to meet everybody. So we'll have to fix that one of these days. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I've got you beat because I've been doing it since 1987. All right. I feel better already. And that's not easy to do because uh, very few people have been on here, if anyone, with more experience than Michael. Is that kind of a fair statement, Michael? Yeah. There's a couple of people who've been on, who started around the same time as I did, but nobody longer, I don't think. And that definitely gives you an indication of his age. So. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, 60, I'm 69 and I'm not ashamed yeah. of it. And he's having the time of his life. You get to know Michael and you'll realize he's a guy who has a lot of good perspective. And we were even joking earlier that we should just have Michael on the podcast as a guest and just see how that goes. I kind of like that idea. What do you think, John? We should do that? I, I like the idea as long as I can write that line Ooh, of yeah. questions. Oh, yeah. And you don't even have – you can spring them on me. You guys can write the outline and then ambush <laughs> me. <laughs> I have a feeling Michael will be able to handle himself, though, in, in any ambush situation. So, yeah. So, before yeah, we get started, so. why don't we talk about the most obvious thing? If you really know Alexi, the first thing you'll know about her is how difficult her first name is to spell. And maybe, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. But, Alexi, tell us a little bit about the name and what you've seen for spellings or what you go through on a regular basis when people try to figure it out. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I blame it all on my mother, who read way too many Russian novels when she was young. My full name, I don't often disclose this, is actually Alexandra. Um, 
But as I like to say, only my dentist calls me that. It's just even too many more syllables. Um, so I sympathize with you, Mark, but I have a solution. One of my best college buddies had the same problem, and she was extremely witty. And what she came up with was, I before E <laughs> except after Alexi. So maybe that will help you. It's A-L-E-X-E-I. The other thing I tell people, and this will make more sense, I think, as we uh, get to the next question, is just think of every Russian male figure skater you've ever seen on the Olympics. It's like every third one is named Alexei. Um, a few of the hockey players as well. Um, so, yes, I am used to every manner of misspelling, but I will say people who spell it correctly get extra credit in my book because it means nice. they've been paying close attention. <laughs> I got it right. I got it right. There you go. So not only is it a difficult name to spell, but it's kind of a unisex name. It's a name that crosses all borders and nationalities Correct. and everything it's, else. Wow. Right. It's like the old, what was it, mm, Cat yeah, right. from Saturday Night Live, right? That's a good yeah. analogy there. There you go. So... Or, or Brian from Life of from oh, Monty Brian, Python, you remember? I, my right. name's Brian. Yeah, I'm Brian. Uh, I'm Brian. So this ice skating thing now, let's talk a, a lot about that because ever since I've known you, I know this is one of your big passions, but it's a little bit more than just a passion. Maybe you can tell us a little bit when you started and what, what that was like and how you got into that. Yeah, it's funny. When I was looking at this question, my first thought was, "Be you might be sorry you asked, because we could spend the entire podcast talking about ice skating, in my opinion. Um, so uh, when I was very young, I skated just very recreationally, only outdoors in the winter. I went to a boarding school in upstate New York near Lake Placid, and we literally froze half the front lawn in the wintertime, put up one by sixes and filled it up with a garden hose. Uh, and that was our ice rink. Uh, and uh, very non-traditional. There was a big snowbank at the far end, and we literally used to have races across the ice and jump into the snowbank, which is not very figure skating-like. Um, but that's kind of where I got my early love for it. But then I moved to California, and I skated literally, like, almost never, maybe once a year for many, many years. And then in my very late 30s, I decided, you know what? It's like I've never lost that bug. So I dipped my toe in the water and I took some group classes. Uh, and that was like the gateway drug because now it's a, it's a full-on obsession. Uh, I have a coach. I take private lessons. I skate at least four days a week. And I compete. And, you know, what most people don't realize is that there is actually a whole adult skating community. It is a sport that's dominated by 14-year-old girls, and they routinely lap us at the rink every morning, you know, doing their double jumps over our heads. But um, there's a surprising number of adult skaters, and uh, we all really stick together. We root for each other. It's, it's so fantastic. And yes, we fall a lot, uh, but it's okay. We have, a, we have a hashtag, get up hashtag get up. Um, and it's, you know, it's vexingly difficult and just completely addicting. It's so much fun. Um, and uh, I do compete usually in a few times a year, including traveling once a year. There's a uh, national all adult competition. You have friends from all over the country who skate. There are international competitions. I've done one or two of those. 
Um, and it's, it's remarkable. It's definitely anyone who tells you it's not a real sport has never done it. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, I must say that um, I've never, never skated. I was a f fanatical and suicidal kamikaze downhill skier for many years, but skating is not, some, not something I've ever done. But it is one of the most beautiful sports in the world to watch. And I don't know whether you remember, do you, Alexi, do you remember Robin Cousins winning the gold routine? Oh, he was my favorite. I, yes, he's British, and he was my favorite as a kid. I loved Robin Cousins. That routine that he did to win the gold was just absolutely breathtaking. Yes, yeah, he, he, was, uh, he was amazing. We can absolutely bond over Robin Cousins. And in fact, I have a friend in Las Vegas who, who knows him very well and still skates with him on occasion. Brian Boitano skates at my rink. Uh, and uh, so he's just another, like, one of the crowd, you know, these days. Of course, he's, a, you know, an Olympic champion. Uh, but he lives here in San Francisco. Uh, and he still skates a couple of days a week. He has private ice, but he's earned it. So I don't, uh, I don't begrudge him that we're always ice time is such a scarcity, but so we mostly see him coming in when, when we're leaving, but he's just the nicest guy too. Like just totally low key. He's not a prima donna, but he can still skate. I don't know whether you know this, but Charles Schultz, the creator of peanuts lived in San Rafael which is not too far from you. Oh, I know all about the Snoopy rink in Santa yeah, Rosa. Yeah, he owned it's, it. And he, he, and, he built that yeah, rink. He is yeah, an, he and his accountant used to play ice hockey every single day after work. Yeah, I actually ran into him there when I was a kid. Uh, in one of those, during those years when I got to skate like once a year, it was at that rink because I lived two hours north of there in rural Northern California and going to that rink was like going to Mecca for me when I was a kid. And uh, he just happened to be there one day when a whole busload of us showed up. And he was so nice to us. Yeah, great. But yeah, people don't know that like Snoopy's skating was, was definitely a thing because Charles Schultz was, was a huge into skating. Well, I watched a documentary on him and I know we're digressing, but um, he, everything in the Snoopy characters, Snoopy... The Peanuts cartoons was based on his life and him. He was Peanut and he was Charlie Brown, rather. And um, so all of that stuff came from his childhood. And uh, I think that's what made it magical. I just love the, the voice of the teacher on the on the Peanuts. You know, the, the wah, 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 wah. Um, but, you know, the one thing I would say about my my skating that, you know, is a takeaway for, for anybody. And I know, you know, it's, it sounds, you know, uh, kind of predictable, but, you know, you really should not decide that you can't do something <laughs> until you try. And it doesn't really matter how old you are. Uh, I have a friend who's 80 who skates, um, and, and well, you know, um, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, if you've had something that's been lingering, you know, in the back of your mind, go try it. 
I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to find an ice skating rink in Santa Pola where I live. If there is such a thing, I'll find it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's right. So uh, skating is pretty dangerous, though, for the most part, right? I mean, in terms of if you fall, fall on your head, that type of thing. You know, it's I'd say it's it's in between. Like, it's not as dangerous as skiing or even water skiing. Um, mm. Get this. The other sport I like to play is flag football. Quite mm. different than figure skating. Um, and I'd say even that's more dangerous. Um, but, you know, there are definitely many sports which are less dangerous than figure skating. You do fall. Mo I always say the falls are in two categories, the ones you forget and the ones you don't forget so quickly right. uh, because you fall all the time. And most of the time, fortunately, you you slide on the ice. And the physics is that if you slide, the energy that would be absorbed into your body actually gets dissipated, right? Mm. So th those are the ones you just get up and you wipe the snow off your butt and you just keep going. It's the ones where you kind of go thud and don't slide. Mm. Like when you go right over your toe pick, uh, then all of that energy is absorbed into, let's say, your knee <laughs> or your tailbone. Mm. Uh, and then you're sore for a few days. Um, yeah. But, you know, really serious injuries, are, are they do happen. I've seen people break their ankles, but it's pretty rare, to tell you the truth. So you just have to be prepared for some. Some people get so afraid of falling that it actually makes their falls worse because you just need to go with it. Like if you're going to fall, just fall and try to slide. You know? Yeah, fall well. Well, I, so exactly. let me just share a quick story with you. Um, many years ago when I was skiing all the time up in, and I'm living in Lake Tahoe, I was decided one day to go skiing in some deep powder and I'd never skied in deep powder. And I thought, well, I'll give this a try. So I'm heading off the, the main piece and I'm in this deep blue powder, deep white powder. And I'm figuring that I'm, I need, I'm going faster and faster and I have no idea how to stop or do anything. So I decided to do the same thing, which was fall over. And I fell over, and the next thing I knew, the skis had come off, and I was flying through the air, somersaulting, and I landed on my back and knocked the wind completely out of me. And I'm lying there gasping for breath, and the ski ski patrol comes up, and he says, are you okay? And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, I'm glad. He said, i got to tell you, it's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> yeah. So you started See, pretty so late. ice skating looks tame compared to that, right? Yeah. So the big surprise here is how late in life you started, you know, this passion. Yes. And yep. the fact that's that... That's my point. Yep. Yeah, and, right. And I think that's a great point because, you know, and being an independent FileMaker developer especially, for many times, I would say you probably dictate your own schedule for the most part, which allows you to have those four days a week to skate. And, you know, you can decide whether it's going to be morning or night and that type of thing. So really interesting. So back up a little bit. Did you did you go to college? And if so, where and what what did you study? And how did that all come about on your professional <laughs> education side of things? Yeah. So get this. <laughs> My major was political theory. <laughs> Yeah, the ultimate would you like fries with that major, right? Uh, yeah. Hey, Alexi, my my uh, college career was cultural anthropology, so so I, I might have you on that one. So, 
I went to the school of hard knocks and just learned how to get through life. <laughs> Michael. Really? There you go, right? Uh, two peas in a pod. That's so funny. So, yeah, I, yeah, I went to a small rural high school in Northern California. Super boring. So I left after two years and went to a community college instead. Um, the average age in California community colleges at the time was 27, and I was 16, but I made it work. Yeah. Um, and then I transferred to San Francisco State University. <clears throat> Interestingly, though, my favorite courses were symbolic logic and critical thinking. So it's pretty clear I was headed to a career in programming, even though I had absolutely no clue at the time. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and save the world, which I now know is pretty much an oxymoron. But Well, that political, well, it was a political oriented degree, and that would come in handy in the last seven, 10, 15 years. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. Um, and uh, actually, Mark, it, it, uh, this ties in directly to you, because one of the reasons one of my clients who hosts with you uh, was interested in a server in Hong Kong is they're worried about the ability of their Chinese counterparts to access a server in the U.S. They're like, if this war gets too much more heated, that could actually be a problem. So we end up talking like politics about trade wars and China-U.S. relations in the course of FileMaker needs analysis. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it is surprising how many customers will in fact make decisions based on political climate, um, in the same way that you've mentioned. Uh, and, and at first blush, you wouldn't think that that would impact people's decision on where to serve, how to serve, what data to move, and when. But it it's, it does. It really does. Well, I think it's probably even more important these days, Mark, with the uh, way that China is cracking down on Hong Kong. It's, um, you know, it's becoming a police state if it hasn't already become one. And I spent a lot of time in the late 80s in Hong Kong. I was there every other week for almost a year. And so I know it very well and even considered moving there at one time. But um, not a good place to be now. Yeah, things are definitely changing. And, you know, privacy laws and sensitivity around all that uh, is ever increasing and becoming more difficult to manage, maintain, navigate. It's it's not easy to to represent yourself in a professional manner while also being mandated by laws of every uh, type and kind while you do it. So it's it's like it's you know there's the technology hurdle, but then there's the the politics hurdle and the logistics hurdle and the all the other hurdles that you go through when you talk about hosting people's data and things like that. And, you know, it's such a small world, like when the European Union introduced, you know, their rules, it's like, I got flooded with emails about, oh, here's our new policies, because, you know, <clears throat> all of these companies, even US based ones, you know, do business over there, right? So they all had to change their policies. And a lot of them just did it for everybody. Uh, so like, I, I felt like I lived in a European country for like the first two weeks of that with all of the notices that I was getting. Oh, yeah. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. 
if we had internal struggles at productive computing, arguing over, well, you know, we're an American-based company, da da da, and, but that these are laws that come down, and so, you know, for the most part, we don't really host outside the U.S. and Canada. I mean, we we basically, for the most part, our we just focus on U.S.-based customers. It keeps it a lot easier that way. I know there's a lot of hosting companies that host internationally, but um, there's a lot that goes into that. A lot of additional risk. So, in any case, now did did I hear this right? You were skip. You skipped a bunch of grades because you were in college at what fifteen? You said. Yeah, I yeah I went to uh, I started college about six weeks after I turned sixteen. So yeah, I basically ditched the last two years of high school. Just got a um, GED or something? It, yeah. So they, uh, in California, there's a state sponsored, it's called the California high school equivalency exam. And it's run by the state. Um, it's definitely designed for people who are like at high risk of dropping out. Um, it was the easiest test I've ever taken in my entire life, which is kind of a sad commentary that that's enough to get you out of high school. Um, I remember it well. I was sick as a dog. I had the worst cold, and uh, but my head was just like this ball of mucus. Um, but the test was so easy. You did have to write two 20-minute essays. I think that killed it for a lot of people, but... Um, other than that, it was all of these multiple choice questions. Um, but yeah, so the uh, the law, at least at the time, of course, I haven't paid attention in decades, but um, you had to be at least 16 or the loophole for those of us with birthdays in July um, was you could be in the second semester of your sophomore year. So, for instance, I wasn't eligible to take it in December because I was still the first semester of my sophomore year, but I took it in April, I think, and found out I passed in May, stuck out my classes to the beginning of June, and said, see you later, bye. Uh, and that was enough to, to go to a community college. So I moved away from home and went to a community college, which was, at the time, it was simply fantastic. Uh, it was near Santa Cruz. It was a place a lot of professors wanted to live. So I had, you know, professors who had their degrees from Berkeley and Harvard, uh, but who preferred to teach at the community college and live in a nice place. Um, and I did that, you know, in the first two years were pretty much general education anyway. So there wasn't a big disadvantage to doing that at a community college. And I just didn't have enough time in school or credits to get into a four-year school um, right out of the two years of high school. But, but yeah, it worked out great. It's not something I, you know, would recommend for everybody, but it worked well for me. You know, it's interesting because I've got some very old friends. Um, they're a Jewish couple and from a very traditional Jewish families. And Martin made, by the time he was 29, he was a gazillionaire. And he and his wife decided to travel the world and live like gypsies with their two kids. And they homeschooled both the kids. And Mar Michelle's parents were horrified that, that their grandchildren were not getting a proper education until Charlton, the boy, passed his O-level maths, which is normally taken at 16 at the mm. age of nine. Wow. <laughs> right. Shut them up. Yeah. yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. So, uh, Alexi, what was your first... 
job or your first professional career job after college? Yeah, my first job after college, uh, getting back to something I mentioned earlier, was as a legal assistant uh, at a law firm in the financial district in San Francisco. And the best thing I can say about that job was that it saved me from my naive belief that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, You know, so I learned a lot, uh, sort of negative object lessons mostly, but um, it it did the trick. and after that, then I moved to Boston. So, you know, I was in California, like, since I was 12 and through college and all of that. And then I did a five-year stint in Boston before coming back. Um, and when I moved to Boston, I worked at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, which was a happy accident. I found them at a job fair. And I'm like, well, okay, that seems interesting. And my first job there was in the president's office, and then I got a promotion and switched jobs into the IT department, and that was really the beginning of my full-time career in tech-related work, and it's kind of been that way ever since. And uh, I think we'll get into this a little later on, but that MIT is also where uh, I discovered FileMaker. And I was basically an accidental FileMaker pioneer at MIT. Um, That job in the president's office, the the whole administrative staff at MIT was just going through a big IT upgrade, which get this, at the time meant an SE20, a Mac SE20. with one megabyte of RAM and a 20 megabyte hard drive. And it was the cutting edge equipment. Um, And so, you know, they were having to like switch software and the office I worked in had this mailing list that was this mess of a thing on a deckmate word processing machine. And um, so I went to the IT department and I said, you know, I have, this mailing list I have to manage. And, you know, here are a few requirements. Get this, the biggest requirement was sliding objects because I had some addresses that were like eight lines long and some that were three. Um, I didn't know the name of it at the time. So they said, oh, um, you should get FileMaker. So I said, okay. So I ordered FileMaker and, you know, it showed up a few days later. So I called them back and I said, okay, and now I have FileMaker, now what? And they said, well, hummerumma, hummerumma, we know it'll do what you need it to do, but we don't really know how to use it. So give us a week. <laughs> so I said, okay. So they assigned uh, a guy who actually later he worked for Apple, worked with me at Claris, uh, a guy named Tony Jackson, uh, who maybe John, maybe remember. Um, yeah. So, uh, so he's responsible for it all. He got me started in this. And he's also the one who uh, encouraged me to go for that promotion um, and get into IT full time. So he taught himself FileMaker for a week. And then he came and he taught me FileMaker for an hour. And then, you know, he went back to doing his regular job. And I spent like all day, every day in, in FileMaker for a week. And then he came back and he spent one more week teaching me a little bit more. And then I proceeded to spend all day, every day (laughs) doing this stuff. And then one day my phone rings and I answer it. And it was somebody from the 
personnel office, which was like all the way on the other side of campus. I had no idea who these people were. And she said, uh, so I have a file maker question. <laughs> I was told to ask you. <laughs> so like, whoa. So uh, turns out I was able to help her with her problem which get this, it was her field touching the header line. Can you imagine like that problem has been with FileMaker for 35 years. Um, and, and I thought, and so, you know, I fixed her problem and I hung up and I thought that was really odd. And then like, two seconds later, my phone rings again and it was Tony from my Tony Jackson. He goes, so I hope you don't mind. I gave your name to someone in personnel because I couldn't figure out the answer to her problem. And I said, well, funny you should mention that. I just got off the phone with her. Uh, and then I literally would have total strangers walk into my office and hear that I had figured out how to correctly print mailing labels in FileMaker. Um, and so I started uh, giving away my database template, you know, is like first free FileMaker, the first FileMaker freeware, maybe anywhere on the planet. Um, I just started uh, on little three and a half inch floppy disks. I would give people empty copies of my database, say, here, go do your oh, man labels. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's how it all started. It's funny. That's the same way I got started with FileMaker. I was working at San Jose State University. I was an assistant to somebody and they gave me this FileMaker database and said, hey, they're not printing uh, 30 labels on a page. Fix right. it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I fixed it. And then I, I went a couple of years and then got a job at Claris. But it, it, it is interesting. And all of us here have been doing this for a very long time. And we've all got similar starts to it. We found something we found FileMaker and we sort of found, fell in love with it and then we managed to do something that everybody else was having lots of trouble and we went I got this this is this is the way I think and I think that's still true today FileMaker is the way I think I would agree 100 yeah. percent. yeah what <laughs> Right. You guys said you were going to be rude to each other. Now it's just a love fest, but, uh, it won't last. <laughs> yeah. But, but I agree. The the whole thing was just, you know, it, just the, the problems that I needed to solve. It was like, Oh, look, here's how to, here's how to fix this. Um, and, uh, after I had that, the, the, you know, uh, database of people to, to tackle, um, then I was given and just reams of billing papers from MIT's lawyers. Um, and it was like the biggest subsummary project maybe ever done in, in FileMaker when it was, you know, this little cute petable, uh, pet of a, you know, productivity tool, no networking, no windows, no server, no nothing. Um, but I, they wanted to be able to analyze their costs and their number of cases. And it was all by like the department and the dean in charge of that department and the category of the case. And, uh, you know, I just built this thing with a gazillion subsummaries. And every time I sorted it differently, they were like, oh, my God, <laughs> they just thought I was a genius. Um, and it was so easy. <laughs> I didn't tell them that. I wanted them to think it was hard. Right. But it wasn't. 
I think we've all had our share of sub-summary reports, uh, 30 by 30 up labels on Avery 5150. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's just, that's what life was like back then. It's, it was all about yeah. data and mailing and data and mailing and reporting and wow. I yeah. was basically about output. Yeah. I once did a sub-summary report that had 13 different sub-summaries and each of those sub-summaries was colored in a different shade of pastel. And basically you could look at the data anywhere you wanted just by sorting by that sub-summary. And of course you only ever saw one sub-summary at any given time. So that was your hetero. And it just blew people's mind away when they saw that. They just went, how do you do that? It, there is something magical about the sub-summaries, even today, you know, just to think about it's a single <laughs> field, but it behaves differently based on where it's positioned. That's, it's, I, yeah. You know, that's a really interesting phenomenon. I don't know how many other platforms do things like that, you know, or can do things like that. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the, one of the issues. Uh, one of the things about FileMaker is it can do things that isn't possible or aren't possible in any other platform at least not without spending enormous amounts of time and energy getting it to do it. Oh, that's easy. It's a file maker. We yeah. can do anything. So speaking of MIT, um, so after you start, you ended up working in the IT department, right? Yes. Full-time. I did. So you yeah. were part of the crew. Yeah, full-time. Yeah. That must have been yeah. exciting times to be a crew you know, on the IT department of MIT. That must have seen a lot of different yeah, things it, in it, your travels. It it was, you know, um, and of course, you know, MIT is a very serious brain trust, but it was it was fascinating, you know, and uh, including, you know, a lot of there's a lot of like high specialization, right? So, and it leads to people being very smart in some areas and knowing nothing in others. Mm -hmm. um, so like my, one of my favorite stories was the day I had to teach the head of the civil engineering department how to use a mouse. Hmm. And he was a very nice guy. And he, we had this little shareware machine that was supposed to be self-service. It was over in a corner and you could just go there with your own floppy disk and put it in and get some of these little freeware whatevers. Right. And so I happened to be walking by and, and there he is, Professor Marks. He's sitting there and like staring at this little Mac computer. And I could see like the smoke coming out of his ears. He's like, how do I do this? You know? So I'm like, you know, Professor, would you like a little bit of help? You know, because like he's kind of, he picked up the mouse and he turned it over and he's like looking at it, right? right? You know, <laughs> holding it in his hand. So I'm like, see this roller? Like you put it down, you see the cursor, you know? And it was like his mind was blown. You know, he's like, wow. See, and then I said, you click this little button here and it opens this folder, you know? And, uh, so obviously, kind of the uh, kind of the opposite uh, reaction uh, that Steve Jobs had to the mouse, I guess. Yeah, right? I guess so, right? Uh, although I have a funny Steve Jobs story for you later on that will show you that everybody is specialized and has gaps in their knowledge. But uh, but that that little incident at MIT, you know, it's just sort of like I was like, hey, you know, it's like I know something the dean of civil engineering doesn't know. Yeah. You know? right. <laughs> so. So that that was pretty So you had mentioned that, or not on this podcast yet, but that there was a FileMaker user group? 
Yeah, so the IT department sponsored several user groups. They were mostly for staff, you know, people who worked in the various offices. So think Word, Excel, um, and they approached me to start one for FileMaker. And that was just before I got the promotion. Maybe it helped me get the promotion because I said yes. Um and so that's one of my claim to fames. I was the, f and I, it may be still going to this day. It lasted many, many, many years after I left. Um, but I started the FileMaker user group and we would have monthly meetings. Um, kind of like, you know, a lot of the developer groups now, we'd have a feature presentation or a case study type thing and then an open roundtable where people could bring up you know, issues or problems. Because at this point, FileMaker had spread far and wide across the campus once everyone had my mailing label template. <laughs> um, that definitely increased the license sales of FileMaker at MIT. <clears throat> and so, um, so, you know, I was the organizer of this meeting. You know, I'd find people to give presentations and organize the meetings. Um, and one fun fact, uh, some of you may know Rich Columbre. Yes. Uh, who has been around in the FileMaker community forever. Well, he's based in the Boston area, and MIT used to hire him to teach FileMaker because the IT department also would have these like one- and two-day courses for mm. staff. You know, again, Word, Excel, um, PageMaker, oh, if you remember that. Um, <clears throat> and... So uh, they didn't always have the bandwidth to teach all of the classes, especially FileMaker, if Tony was, the, he was the only one in IT besides me who knew anything about FileMaker. So they hired Rich and that's like, I knew Rich before I even started working for Claris slash FileMaker, you know, so from way back when, and he very graciously gave uh, more than one presentation at the user group. Uh, and then the other fun thing about the user group, I called them my user groupies, you know, the people who would come mm -hmm. to these meetings. And it was their idea when I announced that I was moving back to California uh, that I should apply. They're like, hey, why don't you go work for Claris? Ah. And I just thought, God, what a great idea. And I went back to my desk and you know, called them up and talked my way into an interview. Wow. Uh, that's a great, that's a great yeah. segue into... Your time at Claris. Was it called Claris when you started? It was, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was. So I was going to say it was the first right. Claris. Um, so yeah. we're Claris 1.0. Claris 1.0. Uh, it was 1992. Uh, and, you know, I had decided to sort of move back home. And, but until they had that idea, I, you know, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to, you know, look for a job. And, um, so I, I called up the HR department. I'm not usually like, I mean, I'm, you know, fairly aggressive when it comes to just my personality, but not in terms of self-promotion, but I'm like, I'm the right person for this mm -hmm. company and I'm going to somehow let them know, you know? And so, you know, I'm talking to some guy in HR and he's like, oh, we'll do an informational interview. I didn't even know what that was, but I could tell it was a euphemism for a waste of time. I'm like, I do not want an informational interview. So I just kept talking, you know, and I said, well, you know, I'm beta testing your FileMaker uh, 2.0. And he's, oh, you know, and I said, you know, and, and then I laid it on him. I'm like, and, you know, I'm the founder of the MIT FileMaker mm. user group. <laughs> and he's like, 
oh, Tuesday at 10 o'clock with the director of technical ah. support. I'm like, okay, that's a real interview. Um, now, who was that? Who was that at that moment? Um, y- you know, it, was that David? Uh, David Ani was the director, and then they had hired a guy, and I'm so embarrassed I can't even remember his name. The interesting thing was the job was for tech support on Windows, right? right? And I was actually more of a Mac person, but I'm like, well, whatever. That's the job they're offering, so it's the job I'll apply for. And turns out. And maybe, John, maybe you have a slightly different perspective because I think you were already there. But to me, Claris was just beside itself <laughs> over the imminent release, the first release of the Windows version of FileMaker. Like the whole company was in a tizzy. They hired a separate manager just to make a Windows tech support group. And they had us. Oh, Nydia. And they had us ghettoized on the far side of this huge cube farm that was tech support. There was this, and and the Mac people would sort of come by and give us these sideways glances, like, "Who are these people?" Uh, in fact, I got there in September, and for Halloween that year, the entire Windows group we dressed as uh, IBM. <laughs> employees right like we all wore these like blue suits with ties and white shirts like we sort of went as a group you know um and so everybody was was in a panic and so the first people they hired for windows tech support were all good at windows but they had no experience with filemaker and then somebody realized, you know, the majority of calls are still going to be like FileMaker usage calls. We should have a few people who know FileMaker. And so when I walked in the door and I had all of this FileMaker experience and I didn't faint at the word Windows, they're like, you've got the job. Literally, I got a phone call two hours after I walked out of the hmm. building uh, with a verbal job offer. <clears throat> and and that's how it that's how it happened. Um, and it wasn't until after I started that they found out that I could also do Mac support, which was pretty hysterical because at the time the windows product wasn't actually shipping yet. And so the phones weren't ringing on the windows side. We were all just gearing up and studying. (laughs) And on the Mac side, they had like 30 minute wait times, right? With the stress board up on the wall saying the longest wait time for a call. So when one of the supervisors found out that I could do Mac stuff, suddenly I'm just sitting in my cube, minding my own business. And, uh, and not the internal office phone, but the tech support phone, uh, started to ring and the light went red, which meant there were all of these calls because he had put me on the Mac oh. queue. And so I'm like, no problem, you know, <laughs> I'll just sit here and take some uh, some Mac FileMaker tech support calls. Um, wow. Yeah, they had a sink or swim uh, approach to tech support, which by all means was was not necessarily bad because they had they're rated one of the best tech supports back in the day. But, you know, they basically shoved you on the phones <laughs> and you had to start talking to people and they had a little tech info. You could the FileMaker database that had articles and you can look at up stuff. And it was it was definitely an interesting experience. You you had a cube mate usually you could, you know, mute your phone and talk to them or somebody might be listening on to you. But there was no real training that I remember of. Yeah, it's it was pretty informal. You know, there was some <clears throat> Like some of the senior people in support would do these little trainings um, 
And like the first Windows tech support call I ever took was a cross-platform networking call of all things. And it was like, I was sweating bullets. And uh, they had somehow decided that the Windows team needed to have a meeting. And so they left me, like the the newest employee. They're like, oh, we'll let Alexi, no one's going to call. We'll let Alexi handle the phones while we're meeting. And sure enough, the phone rings, right? And... And it was, you know, this guy who's, and it's like at the time it was, you know, cross-platform networking was a thing, right? It wasn't just a no-brainer. And, but the day before we had had this like little hour-long lunch and learn uh, from Eric Culver, who many of you may know. Yeah. Eric Culver. Right? All of the Claris Tech Support alumni who have gone on to illustrious careers. And he had covered cross-platform networking so like i just i took a breath i'm like okay let's see keep calm and find your notes right so uh so i did that i actually fixed the guy's problem and then you know the rest of the windows crew comes back from the meeting they're like so alexi how was it you've been bored and i'm like not exactly (laughs) wow so 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 i feel the need yeah absolutely i i feel the need to rewind a little bit though Okay. Because I was there when you came yes. in. I was there before. Yep. Um, and I'll, I'll give you the ghetto eyes. Um, <laughs> you know, you there was a big, you got to imagine this big giant warehouse that had been converted into a call center. So it was just a bunch of cubes. And there was basically when the Windows people can, they basically doubled the, the tech support workforce because they were worried they were going to get slammed, yeah. right? They didn't know what was going to happen. And all these Windows people came in. And this is my perspective of the, the, the beginning because you got yours. I'm going to give you mine um, from the Mac side. And, and these people came in and they're forced to use a Macintosh because they had a proprietary email system there. And so they had to have a Mac next to the Windows machine. Like you said, most of these people were Windows people. And they're like, nah, 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 nah. I don't want to do that. Nah. Six months later, half of mm. them owned their own Macintoshes. <laughs> that is, I do not disagree with that at all. Um, it, it was, that was definitely true. Uh, part of the reason they could put me on the Mac queue is because I had that Mac and I had file, you know, I, I was using it for more than just the proprietary email and phone, right? I actually used it. Um, so, uh, but, but it's, it was definitely true. Um, one, uh, one of, uh, my windows colleagues, somehow he got on a call with a guy who also had a Mac and he comes running into my cube (laughs) just completely freaked out and he says I have a customer on the phone and his computer is singing boy George (laughs) because you know at the time you could change the Mac like you couldn't do any of that on Windows right and so like every time there was like an error the the customer's computer was going karma 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 chameleon because <laughs> that's what the guy had put as his as his default sound and um i i had out i feel good right well i have to give you i have to give you both a different slightly different perspective so bear in mind this is 1987 i've been working with farmaker in the uk and uh and I had created this solution for ITN, which was the equivalent of British equivalent of CNN, to handle their budgeting. And long story short, I ended up showing it to people at Claris, um, demonstrating it. And at the end of it, they went, 
I asked them why they were so interested in seeing it, and the reply was that we didn't know Farmaker could do this mm. stuff. <laughs> and from that point on, every time the Claris people got a call saying, can Farmaker do this? They go, we don't know. Here's Michael's number. Give him a call. And I, <laughs> I ended up fielding hundreds of calls from people who'd called Claris who were wanting to know if Farmaker could do this. So I guess I was Claris tech support, except I was making money right? off every call. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, that kind of thing happens a lot. I think, uh, I don't know, John, if this is kind of spilling the beans, and I'm probably making this up, but uh, I always thought that the thing that drove you out of tech support and into QA was when you had the great misfortune to create an awesome inventory system. <laughs> this was way before FileMaker was really honestly, rationally capable of doing such a thing. Uh, it wasn't even relational at the time, right? Um, you could do lookups to other files. And I don't know, you know, John Mark just got this idea, you know, this was a cool thing and he was going to play with it. And then every time the phone rang and the customer at the other end said, you know, I'm trying to do inventory. It's like transfer to John, transfer to John Mark. And he's like, guys, I just did this for research. <laughs> it's like every inventory management related call wound up in John's queue because uh, he made the big mistake of, being the inventory pioneer. Do you remember that? Uh, I, I don't. I mean, but there's a lot of things that are, that are hazy back I do then. Remember I can well. tell you, though, there, there are two reasons why I went to quality assurance. Uh, one is that, uh, I forget the guy's name, came down and asked me to do it. He's a former tech support guy. So you'd be really good at it. I'm like, okay. And, and number two, after talking to customers on the phone for, I think at that time was about four years, three and a half years, four years, uh, it, it gets a little old because you're like, wow, I just, I want, I, I knew FileMaker so well at that point uh, that it was just kind of, it was boring. Yeah. Yeah. You um, do burn out being on the, on the phones all day, every day. You right. know, I, I solved that by becoming the tech lead for Claris works. And so my phone time got cut down to like three hours a day because I had all of these other, uh, responsibilities and I had to go to the cross-functional team meetings and argue with engineers about fixing bugs and all that kind of thing. Um, but I always, you know, analogize it's like working on the floor of a stock market. It's like exhilarating and then you burn out, mm. right? Uh, if you have to do it all day, every day. But what's interesting is that both of you use the same phrase, sink or swim. And don't you think that that's really how we've all become really good at FileMaker? We've been given problems to solve and we've not given up. We've said, I'm going to find a way to do that. So we've swum instead of sinking and FileMaker has made that possible because it's so um, right brain thinking. I, I think I think, Michael, um, the way I put it, because I agree with what you're saying, is it's we know how to solve problems. We don't necessarily memorize all the answers. We're not the smartest guys in the room, but we're really good at isolating issues um, and finding out problems. And that, that bodes well with FileMakers because it's really that kind of a, a software package. You know, there's all these different kinds of tools you can connect together. Absolutely. And if you get good at them. You can really, you can really do some crazy stuff with FileMaker. It's, it's an amazing software program. Yeah, no doubt. Um, but I, 
I wanted to ask Alexi one one question about tech support. Well, many questions, but um, do you remember all the products you used to support? I'm just curious if you might list uh, some of the Claire's products that you supported. Oh, well, gosh. Because I know it's more than FileMaker, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> so like part of it was, um, you know, being on the, the Windows side uh, initially, especially, you were you were expected to support everything on windows, right? Because that was this whole craziness about knowing windows. And so uh, there was a product called Hollywood. You remember that? That was um, officially, I believe that was actually Claris's first windows product. Um, Cause they, they acquired it from somewhere and it was actually on the market before the windows version of FileMaker officially released and then after filemaker was released there was um uh mac draw for for windows um so so those were the the three big ones and then well actually i shouldn't say that because then the really big one was claris works for yeah. windows um so there were a bunch of other products that never made it to a windows version like mac pro um Clarisworks came out on Windows, I believe, when Clarisworks was at the 3.0. And Clarisworks 3.0 for Windows was the worst piece of software ever released onto the human mm. <laughs> planet. Uh, can't, be was, worse than, can't be worse than Excel, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know. From a, from a bug point of view, the thing was just a buggy mess. And... We had Hey, what version of Clarisworks was that? Clarisworks 1. No, 0? it was 3.0, which was the first Windows version. Oh, thank goodness. I worked on Clarisworks 4.0 for Windows. So Yeah, yeah, I'm no, safe. no. You they, they had learned <laughs> lessons by then cuz Clarisworks 3.0 was the first one. Now FileMaker 2.0 for Windows, which was the first Windows, definitely had some had some bugs. Um, but Clarisworks 3.0 was 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 worse. Um, and you know who you can ask about that is Steve Romig, uh, who is uh, uh, still with Claris. I think maybe he left and came back. But anyway, um, he. Yeah, he's back. Yeah, yeah, now. no, he's been there for a while now. But he worked in support with us and he was on the Windows side and he uh, was the tech lead for Claris Works for Windows. And he wrote this like troubleshooting step-by-step -step guide and it was I, I probably still have it somewhere i should find it it was a it was a piece of work because that product we had so many they were general protection faults was the common windows uh error at the time and i remember i went home and i was just like i couldn't get this stuff out of my brain i literally wrote a haiku all about general protection faults i mean that's how bad it was and i'm not a poet i don't know how that came out of me but uh it was like something i just had to work out of my system claris works john 4.0 for windows was much better um it didn't crash just when you looked at it sideways uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, it was uh, it was uh, interesting testing on Windows because I was not a big fan. Uh, I'm still not, and never have been, but I've always tried it. But uh, you know, Clarisworks 4.0, I still have a the uh, the box, literally have the the unopened box <laughs> yeah. inside my closet right now for Windows, awesome. and my name is yeah. somewhere on it. That's why right. I keep it. So. Do you remember Microsoft awesome. Windows 2000? Do any of you remember that? 
I do. Mark, do you remember that? Oh, yes. Sure. Do you know yeah. how many bugs it had that Microsoft knew about when they released it? No. I'm afraid to ask. 47,000. Wow. Oh, thousand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good timing. Good leading, good leading. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So I was just, I know I was just going to oh, say, where did it ahead. progress from tech support? Uh, so, so I became, uh, the, the product team lead for Claris works because that was the job that was open, uh, as opposed to FileMaker, but they always kept me on the FileMaker queue just because I knew so much about FileMaker, but I did become a, a Claris works expert. Um, and that was, uh, important a, because I think it extended my life in tech support, not having to be on the phones eight hours a day. Um, and but secondly, so in um, 1998, Claris 1.0 was dissolved and became FileMaker Inc. Um, frankly, it was a terrible day. Half the company was laid off. Um, and I actually went out with a bunch of people afterwards and had two sips of a drink, which those who know me, like, I do not do alcohol. It just makes me so fuzzy headed. But I'm like, all right, fine. I'll try this. I was so depressed. Um, I was not one of the people who was mm -hmm. laid off. Uh, although, get this, I had requested it because there were all these rumors flying around that, you know, at the time, Apple's tech support was in Texas. And I'm like... If they offer me a take it or leave it transfer to Texas, I'd much rather have a severance package because I'm not going to mm. Texas. So I'm like, well, you know, so I went in and I talked to David Ani. Just I said, you know, I know there's a lot of rumors. I know you can't say anything, but if you're looking for people who need to go, you can put me on the list. But that didn't happen because I was transferred to the mothership, Apple, um, because Claris Works was the only product besides FileMaker that survived that transition. Uh, FileMaker Inc. was renamed that to focus just on FileMaker. Um, they still had homepage because it integrated with FileMaker to make web pages, sort of. Um, <laughs> and uh, but. All the other products were officially transferred to Apple. They were on the price list for three months, and then they died. Claris Emailer, Claris Draw, MacWrite, all these other things. Um, and Claris Organizer went to Palm. Right, right, or they were sold off, right? Claris Organizer. That's good for right. you. I forgot all about that. That's correct. And Claris Works was was kept, you know, someone whispered in Steve Jobs's ear, you know, like, hey, this is the most ubiquitous software on the Macintosh platform. Um, and it's the number one app in education, which was, a, you know, one of Apple's biggest markets at the time. So they're like, yeah, okay, we won't kill Claris work. So they, a small, you know, half the company, half the employees were kept and became FileMaker employees, roughly half were laid off. And then this smallish group of us, maybe 35 or 40, uh, almost all of whom were connected to, to Claris Works in some way, either in sales, engineering, quality assurance, tech support, uh, documentation, I think, uh, were transferred to Apple to continue with Claris Works. Um, which Steve Jobs promptly renamed Apple Works, which was super confusing because there had been an Apple Works for the Apple II, uh. um, which had nothing to do with 
the Claris works that became Apple works. Uh, but there you have it. Um, so I was transferred there and for a year, um, I was, they called them readiness engineers. I was basically at the top of the food chain in tech support, which Apple, such a big company, it meant I never actually spoke to customers, but I dealt with engineering and training tech support and all that kind of thing. And it, it, that was the weirdest job transition of all time, because at first I was treated like an invading virus with all of these white blood cells, you know, encircling mm -hmm. me like what? You know? um, like nobody there wanted anything to do with Claris works. And the guy who was my manager, I was having a discussion with him because we were talking about the transition of like when FileMaker was going to stop answering the tech support calls for Claris works. And, you know, and I'm bringing up like some important issue and he goes, yeah, what are they going to do about that? And I'm like, Greg, there is no they, it's mm. us. <laughs> oh, what are we going to do about it? And literally like I watched him turn white, you know, I'm like, yeah, it's us. So let's get real and, and do this. And then without telling anybody, as far as I could tell, there was this big product announcement of the. Uh, the new iMac, which was the thing that was going to save Apple, right? Which at the time really did need saving. Um, and right there on the stage at De Anza College in front of all the media and everything, Steve Jobs announced, A, that the product was renamed, and B, that it was going to ship by default on every new iMac. Wow. And suddenly I was the flavor of the month. I literally wanted to put up like a deli <laughs> counter outside my cube. Like, yeah, take a number. Everybody like, oh, can I talk to you? Can you come to a meeting? <laughs> and it was like, all right, you know, now we're talking. Because um, then like the, you know, mission one at Apple at the time was that the iMac had to be a success. It had to be a smashing big success. And so when people found out Apple Works was going to be on there and nobody knew diddly squat about it, um, that's really saved the product. And after a year, I interviewed for and got a promotion into engineering and became the engineering project manager for Apple Works. And I did that for about two years. Is this the good time for the Steve Jobs story? <laughs> no, no, actually it comes a little bit later, but actually we can, we, okay. we can get to it. It's up to you. I just, I just don't <laughs> want to miss the Steve Jobs yeah, story. Yeah, so. we, we won't. So, um, so I did that at, at Apple. Um, and then there was a reorg at Apple and cause they were kind of getting more serious about software. Um, because it really, I felt like a fish out of water doing software at Apple at the time. It was such an afterthought, but it stopped being so. And at any rate, they they reorganized the whole Apple Works team, was moved into the new software division. And first I told them, oh, you're going with it. Then they're like, oh, we're dissolving this position. <laughs> and literally Apple HR didn't know what to do. It took them two weeks to decide whether they had to officially offer me a severance package because they wanted me to stay and work on other things. Uh, the first version of OS 10 was just, uh, just, it wasn't quite released yet. And it was a hot mess. It was just on fire and they needed 
project managers and everybody to kind of get it out the door. They wanted me to do that. I didn't want to do that, but I didn't tell them. And uh, so I secretly started interviewing and then they said, yeah, officially we have to offer you this. It was like a slow motion layoff. They're like, officially we have to offer you this severance package, even though we want you to stay. And I'm like, show me the money. <laughs> Literally right then I'm like, yeah, I'm gone. Um, so I escaped the whole Apple FileMaker Claris Vortex for all of three months. I got a job in, here in San Francisco. And then I was recruited back to FileMaker uh, by Stephen Gallagher, who many of oh, you yes. probably know. Um, and, uh, and that was great. So then I was, uh, I had never, you know, really, I had only worked for Claris. And when Claris became FileMaker, that's when I went to Apple. So I was recruited back to the FileMaker, FileMaker, which is now Claris 2.0. Um, and worked as a systems engineer for 12 and a half years, uh, which was a, a great ride. So, John, not to disappoint, <laughs> this is the segue, because that's the job I had when this happened. So one of your guys' questions was, any interesting phone calls I ever participated in? And there were many, um, but the one from Steve Jobs takes the cake. Uh, so, yeah, he called me on my cell phone on a Saturday afternoon and from a blocked number. Oh. <laughs> so... And when he said it was Steve Jobs, I laughed. Like, for real. <laughs> no joke. Like, <laughs> yeah, Steve Jobs is not going to call me. What would, what, At you 2 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon on my cell phone, not even my official work, you know, line. Um, and I thought it was, you know, my brother or somebody just being silly, yanking my chain. And... Then he said something that made me realize it was really him. And like, I saw my whole career pass before my eyes. I thought, I'm done, you know. Uh, so no, it was really him. And he had gotten my number from Dominique Goupil, who was the president of FileMaker at the time, who had left me a, a very oblique message that some Apple executive had an acupuncturist who needed help with FileMaker. And he apologized later. He's like, I didn't think he would call you himself. I was just trying to protect his privacy. I thought his assistant would call you because I was like, dude, mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, he almost crossed me. Like, yeah, give me some right? warning, like, right? Please, like a little heads up would have been nice. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, Steve was ill at the time. Nobody knew it. And he was seeing this acupuncturist and, uh, he was very fond of her, I guess. And he was helping her get a new Mac and upgrade to OS X. And, but talk about being specialized in gaps in the knowledge. I, I almost had to mute myself. <laughs> he asked me, I was shocked at how little he knew about FileMaker, really. He asked me if her database needed to be recompiled for OS X. Oh. So I put on my most patient tech support, you know, nothing heads, you know, mindset and explained that although there was a new version of the FileMaker app that was compatible with OS 10 and native on it, that the database itself was fine. You know, um, but it was, it was very funny. He was actually very nice to me because, you know, he needed a favor, right? <laughs> I don't know that he was always so nice to everyone else. Um, 
but uh, but he was to me, and he was super tenacious. Like he followed up with an email like the next day, which was or like Monday morning. And I'm like, yes, I have a message into her. I'm trying to get an appointment, you know. And then the next day, I'm like, okay, I'm going over there today at three. Uh, and uh, once you know, he was satisfied that uh, she was getting the help she needed. You know, he he backed up. But it was it was very amusing to actually be you know i don't think him. anybody could ever describe steve jobs as being other anything other than tenacious right <laughs> i can't can't remember the name of the the biography uh, written after he died which i bought and read and it was fascinating and he was definitely a genius but i don't know how anybody would would put up with him in a working environment because i'd have punched him in the face about 30 times in the first 10 minutes right well, they didn't. They ousted him, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, but that was part of his genius is that he never let anything go. Yeah. Right? If he believed in something. But Michael, I totally agree. Like when I when I worked at Apple, I worked, you know, at uh, the main campus, which was the one Infinite Loop campus at the time, and he used to frequent the uh, the cafe Max, the cafeteria there, all the time, and. You know, his office was in building one, the cafeteria was in building four, and all of the buildings were in this kind of circle surrounding this big uh, courtyard. And he never wore a badge, mm. right? And the rest of us were like, you know, if you tailgate, you'll be fired, right? Like there was very strict, like you always needed to, you know, have your badge um, and use it to unlock the door, even internally in this courtyard, like to get from building to building, except you could walk into the cafe from the courtyard. Um, and so he would go to the cafe, get some food. And if he wasn't eating with other people, he would just bring it back to his office. And it was always the big conundrum, like, do you allow Steve Jobs to tailgate you? <laughs> which is supposed to be the number one big no-no, right? You're not supposed to let anyone in behind you who doesn't use their badge to open the door. So, but like it's Steve Jobs. Do you not let him tailgate? You know, let him tailgate. You let him do whatever he wants to do. You know, my strategy, this happened to me several times, was always either to like super speed up so that, the you know, I'd be well within the building before he was close to it or literally <laughs> backpedal. So he would have to go before me. I mean, but it literally like changed my walking patterns around that campus to avoid the whole tailgate conundrum. It's like, I just don't want to go there, you know? Alexi, that now that is funny. Yeah. That is funny. Yeah, I would. I would have loved to have have her on video backing up. Literally or backing up. up. So. I, I mean, I, I would kid you not. I would walk backwards or pretend I forgot something and turn around. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like ridiculous. Well, I, I gotta. This is a non-farmmaker story, but I'm gonna share it because I think you guys will enjoy it. In 1982, I was living in. Pacific Palisades, I was house-sitting a $5 million house three doors down from Sylvester Stallone's. And, I was in high school. Uh, well, yeah, you would have been because you were a young sprog. Anyway, so I didn't have a job, so I ended up taking a job at Bel Wells Fargo in Beverly Hills, and I was running the safe deposit department. This is long before FileMaker. And one day, George Hamilton comes in, 
to get some stuff out of his box. And I said, Mr. Hamilton, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he went, no, and of course not. I said, you just made a movie about Evil Knievel. How did that happen? Because that's so far out of your normal range. And he said, you know, it's an interesting question. He said, as it happens, Evil Knievel is a very good friend of mine. Anyway, he sat on the edge of my desk and we talked movies for two hours. He was just the most <laughs> delightful guy. And about three years ago, I had a client who was an entertainment attorney in Los Angeles. And I was telling him this story and I said, you know, I've always wanted to find a way to write to him and let him know how much I appreciated his kindness. And he said, oh, well, that's easy. He said, he's my client. Here's his email address. So I, I sent him an email saying, you know, I know you won't remember this, but here's what happened and when. And 10 minutes later, I got an email back from George Hamilton saying, I've been waiting for you to write and say thank you for 30 <laughs> odd years. <laughs> there you go. Well, you made an impression, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so. I want to ask something about uh, a systems engineer, yeah. right? Because I don't think we've described what your duties were, what your, what your, you know, what you had to accomplish. And if you could give us like a day in the life of a systems engineer, um, I think it might help people understand what you did. Yeah, it was a very interesting job. So uh, formally speaking, it the job was in the sales department. Um, but I never really say I was in sales because, uh, that that's actually not my strong suit. Um, but the, the job, and it had several aspects. The, the main thing was to be attached to account managers, the actual sales people, um, who, some of whom started out knowing less about FileMaker than Steve Jobs, I have to say, um, but, you know, their skill set was sales, not necessarily all of the technical side. So my number one job was to make the sales guys successful by uh, interacting with the uh, clients to uh, answer their technical questions. Um, it, you know, like if you just took the little... Uh, screw in the back of my back and wound me up and let it go. I just started demoing, right? That's like, there was, it was just uh, a constant FileMaker demos to uh, all kinds of, mostly the larger licensing uh, clients of FileMaker and then, you know, answering their specific questions, trying to, it was a lot of sort of needs analysis. Like listen to the clients and then try to, you know, show them how FileMaker could, uh, help solve their problems. Um, but there were other aspects of the job, which are probably well known to you guys and others, which was sort of to, to liaison with the external developer community. Uh, one thing FileMaker really did always understand very well was that it would be nowhere without the third party developer community, because it was always a minority of customers who had in-house development um, resources and, and expertise. And so uh, we, we knew that the developer community was critically important to our mutual customers. Um, and so we did a lot of liaison work, especially with the partners. Sometimes they would join us with 
with meetings, we'd help answer questions and solve problems for them. And um, so there was a lot of that. We had very high profile presence at all of the dev cons. We were basically required to do uh, sessions, which we wanted to do. And usually it was on things like new features and stuff that other people wouldn't have had as much exposure to, because obviously we had full insight into the pre-release versions of, of FileMaker. So, you know, the job had a ton of variety, which I just loved, right? Because no two customers were the same. There was a lot of travel, and I admit that, like, travel for its own sake, to me, has no romance left at all. Like, I spent so much time at airports and rental cars and uh, all of that. So I used to say, I didn't here, yeah, here. I didn't love travel. I, 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 I never even liked it when I did it. Um, I traveled a lot, and I didn't even like it then. I'd just go back to my hotel room and watch, you know, television and eat food and go to sleep. Right, so. I know. It was like my boyfriend would say, "Where are you?" And then he'd say, "Oh, right. It doesn't really matter. You're just in a hotel room somewhere." <laughs> right. And I'm like, exactly. Yes. Um, that is actually a, a funny story. One day I forgot where I was. <laughs> it was too much travel. My brain was so fried, and. We were, I think it was the FileMaker 7 tour. We, I mean, it was like one of these, if it's Tuesday, it must be Milwaukee, right? Like we were just all over the place. And I was actually in LA, which wasn't that far from home, but I had been everywhere and it was late at night. It was raining and I had just come from somewhere and I'm checking in and the woman at the front desk is checking me in and she's asked me, oh, would you like a newspaper in the morning? So I said, sure. And she said, uh, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, or local. Mm. <laughs> and I, she just saw my brain seize up. I'm like, local. Where, what, where is local? What is like? Where am I? <laughs> right? Like, I couldn't figure out which newspaper that was going to be because, you know, if it was like New York or LA or Chicago, I would take local. But you know, if it was like Lincoln, Nebraska, I'd be like, okay, Wall Street Journal, <laughs> you know. And, and she was, she was so nice. She just looked at me. She said you're in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I was like, I'll never forget that. I'm like, okay, this job is kind of getting to me. I think I need some sleep. Um, so I'm like, oh, Los Angeles. Okay, I'll take the local paper. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, I like what a, I did when I, I got there. but I did a trip once, a business trip, nothing to do with FileMaker. And I left London on July the 1st. I flew to San Francisco. I had a meeting in San Francisco, one in Honolulu, one in Tokyo, one in Hong Kong, one in Osaka, another one in Hong Kong, one in Taiwan. And I was back in London on July the 11th, 10 wow. days later. And I got home and my brother picked me up at the airport and I couldn't even talk to him. I was so tired. And I got home. My mother said, would you like a cup of tea or coffee? And I went, whatever. And... <laughs> Ten minutes later, she said, how was it? And I said, what? She said, the cup of tea I gave you. I said, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was brain dead for three days after that trip. Very Just very absolutely very brain dead. <clears throat> but, you know, it was a, uh, and, you know, a lot of it, um, that the particulars of, of the job have, you know, served me well in, in the aftermath because, you know, well, one sort of unsatisfying thing was like never 
like I couldn't spend enough time with any single customer, right? Like I couldn't develop their database for them, right? You know, so I could solve, you know, individual problems here and there or give them a vision to how to do something and refer them to people who could help them. But, you know, I got to see so many different databases and so many different use cases and, you know, just... uh it was a chance to learn like how FileMakers actually used in the grassroots that, you know, you no one person can easily acquire that kind of uh, breadth and, and variety. So I really, that was, you know, one of the high points. Gave you a broad perspective of everything that's out there. Very. But, yeah. here, but here's the interesting thing about this, and Mark and John, I'm sure you've also thought about it, is that all businesses are fundamentally the same. They've all got a product or service they sell on market. They have customers, they have products, they have inventory, they have invoices, they have quotes. And it's only the, the very specifics of the individual business that differs. So when we go in, we can look at go into any business and look at that solution and go, I only need to know 10%. I just need to know the 10% about this business because I already know the other 90%. You know, but when it comes to larger organizations, you know, like FileMaker, in, in my experience, like it's, it's, it's big in departmental use, right? So for larger companies, it's not their CRM, like for really big companies. Um, but it's solving specific problems at the departmental level. So some, so yes, the larger company has exactly what you just said, right? But the problems, the more specialized problems that are sometimes trying to be solved, um, so, for instance, like Boeing, right, huge company, <clears throat> they make airplanes and they sell them to airlines. So at that level, yeah, right. Um, but like one of our customers was uh, was basically like a contractor for them. And the one thing that they did, the only thing that they did was paint airplanes, and I had no idea how complex that could be, but they literally like each kind of paint has a weight and they have to account for the weight of everything on an airplane, including the paint. Right. And so, you know, the type of paint that was chosen and the amount of area that needed to be painted and the plane, like, so like their database, there wasn't an invoice in the system, there wasn't a customer in, they had no customer table, they had no people table, they didn't care about people, they cared about airplanes and paint, and um, and yet they had a pretty complex database, and projects, right, like which things were being painted where and when and all of this other stuff. Um, so sometimes... Oh no, you're, abs you're absolutely right, Alexi, and, and that is definitely true. And but also, to to a very large degree, that's where we people like us come in because we can solve those problems, and it all comes down to our greatest skill is solving problems. Yes, yeah, that's what yep. we do. Yep, absolutely. Paint is important. In fact, uh, if you if you take a look at the shuttle, the pre the previous shuttle, the largest fuel tank was unpainted. And it was unpainted because it added additional weight that they didn't need to justify. Ah, 
they only they only painted right, the solid exactly. rocket boosters. So what you're saying is 100% true. Yeah. Yep. That's it, but it but also this is also part of what makes our job fascinating is we do get these incredibly crazy and fascinating use case scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. And even after been doing it for 34 years, I still get ones and I go well, I never thought of that. That's really interesting. You know, I think when people say, why why would I want to use FileMaker when I can just get this, this, and that online for X amount of price, and it does this, that, and it does handles all my needs, quote unquote. And it's for these exact scenarios, which really apply to every company, large and small, that there is no solution ready-made off the shelf on a website somewhere um, that just isn't. So whenever you, and it seems to me that a lot of businesses, if not most, have a unique circumstance, something special that they do that doesn't have a solution. That's where FileMaker comes in. Uh, that married with the talents of the developer, then, it, you know, that's where the, the real magic happens. You marry the talent, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's very interesting you should say that because there's an awful lot of emphasis these days on competing products like Airtable and, you know, and Coda and other things. And Airtable is just something I know a little bit about because I had to do a project for somebody. And Airtable is absolutely fine for a free solution that doesn't do very much. But the moment you start to get into any decent-sized record count, it's going to cost you more a month than FileMaker does. And it doesn't have anywhere near the power of flexibility. Right. So, you know, it's a it's being sold under the basically it's a con job because it doesn't do what people need it to do. I call it. And you know, Mark, to uh -huh. your point, I, I'm I'm always amazed at how often I find myself reminding existing FileMaker clients, like their expectations from using other software are so low, right? And they'll say to me things like oh, well, you know, can we do this? And I remind them, I'm like, remember, you have custom software and you have me, right? These are your advantages. You've invested in this right. and we can make it work, you know, because they're like, oh, I guess we could do X, Y, Z. Like they're thinking of workarounds for their own process yes. to fit the software. And I'm like, no, no, let's think the other, always start thinking the other way around. Think about how you want to work. And then we're going to make the, the database empower that you know, what works for you. And then they're like, oh, you know, it's like, uh, and, and that's how, you know, then they become, you know, completely loyal, can't live without their database. Oh, yeah. Clients. I I'm sure we all have stories of selected clients who a department is loves, loves their solution. And then IT comes along and says, you know, uh, we're going to roll this up into the big, you know, the big mainframe, the enterprise system. And I, I have dozens of stories where that has attempted to happen. And in most cases, like nine out of 10 cases, it doesn't happen because number one, they can't do it. Number two, it's too expensive. Number three, it takes way too long. And number four, the department that's using FileMaker won't l let it go from their tight grip uh, for good reason. Right. So I'm sure you all have a story about that, but wow. But have you ever considered when you really look at the systems that we are asked to improve or replace, how many of them 
are not actually computer systems. They are a manual system being done on a computer. Classic case in point is a spreadsheet. A spreadsheet is not a database. It'll never work like one. And people type the same thing over and over again. That's not an automated system. That's a manual system. And what we do with FileMaker is create automated processes where things happen without the user having to type something. And it's staggering to me how few companies understand this. Yeah. And actually, it's you're exactly right. This is a, a fun story. Actually, and a, a, a guy at Apple, so when I worked for FileMaker, uh, I got asked to do some little internal work and help a department at Apple. Uh, and a, a very smart guy who had a spreadsheet, right? So we go over there and meet with the guy, and he's projecting his spreadsheet on the wall. And, and he... To his credit, he got it very quickly. I took one look at the spreadsheet, and I said, you see all of those indents? <laughs> You're, that tells me right there that this data is not mm. flat, right? Like, you know, he's trying to simulate one to many by, like, indenting, right? Like, all these things are subs of this yeah. other thing, right? Uh, and, and I said, and then you can't do X, Y, Z. And he's like, so FileMaker can do that? And I'm like, give me one day with that spreadsheet. And he gave me the spreadsheet and the next day I, you know, it was rudimentary, you know, uh, but uh, it blew his mind. <laughs> and, and that was the end of his spreadsheet. He's like, okay, I'm going to learn this now. You're going to help me, right? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, I had exactly the same thing. The, um, you know, McLaren cars, the supercar company, they have a U.S. racing team. And the guy who ran the racing team called me and he said, I've got this spreadsheet and it's driving me nuts because I've got all these cars and I've got to keep track of all the parts that we use on them and I've got to keep track of all the events we do and all of that. And I went, send me your spreadsheet. And he sent me the spreadsheet and I looked at it and Monday morning I sent it back to him. I says, okay, you now owe me three grand. <laughs> and he goes, why do I owe you three grand? I says, Take a look at what I just sent you. And he went, I'm sending you a check right now. <laughs> so, yeah. Alexei, I wanted to ask you a question about something you spoke, I believe, quite a bit about. And that's uh, it's also one of the most misunderstood things in FileMaker. And that's uh, file maintenance and recovery. Uh -huh. Yes, it was always a favorite topic of mine. Uh I know it was years ago, but it hasn't changed much. It's still the same rules. Can you talk a little bit about what you spoke about? Because I think people, we've talked about it before, but I'd like to give a, a, a you know another approach to it. And uh, even if it's some of the same information, it's it's important to reinforce it, I think, about recovery and file maintenance. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, it's kind of part of a larger topic, which is kind of one of my pet peeves, um, which is the subset of the FileMaker community that thinks it's all about, you know, relational modeling, scripts, calculations, JSON, web viewers. I'm like, you know, customer success means it has to, people have to be able to access their data and use it. Uh, and, and it has to be, it has to have, the data has to have integrity, right? Like you could design the most beautiful, complex, whiz-bang database and it's useless, right? If, 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 you know, your network infrastructure can't support it or whatever, right? Um, so that's why, like, FileMaker server is always a favorite 
topic and and file maintenance and and recovery uh was was another um you know the simple truth of the matter is that corruption happens right and it's not just filemaker you know it's like people say to me oh, can you guarantee that this will never break i'm like can you can your auto mechanic guarantee that your car will never break down it's like it's it's life right um and so be prepared, so be prepared. Right? that's yeah. the thing right um be be prepared it's like uh you know if you drive around without a spare tire right that's a risk and it's a risk you can easily mitigate by just having a spare tire um also to my point if you have a spare tire that's flat it's as good as not having a spare tire right so you know, you have to do these things and you also have to have an ongoing mindset, right? That's where maintenance come, comes in. Um, and so, uh, you know, and it would break my heart to, to see, you know, people with critical databases with, you know, no good backup strategy, um, Phil Smith, who was one of my favorite uh, co-workers at, at FileMaker. Love Phil awesome Smith. Awesome guy, right? Loved him. And, you know, he was, yeah. and he loved to tell a story about the day he, he took me to visit the coach of the Stanford University baseball team who, like, had all of his recruiting and all of this other stuff in a FileMaker database. And he would tell people, Alexi literally told him to get out of his desk chair, and she sat at his computer and backed up his database right on the spot. <laughs> And it's a true story because this guy was waxing on about how important this database was to him. And then I, you know, I asked him a few basic questions and it was clear to me there was no backup. Mm. And I was just so agitated. I literally got up and said, can we just take a little break? I'm going to back up your database. Uh, but you know, here's the, I got a call the other day and this is just a perfect segue into this story. Um, in 1997, I released a software a FileMaker vertical application called ISP Billing, and I actually ended up with 5% of the entire U.S. market using for ISPs using this software, and I made a lot of money off it. And after about 10 years, it sort of had run its gamut and people's consolidation, and so there wasn't a market, so I stopped using it. And I got a call from this guy the other day who had been a client, and he said, I run into a problem. Can you help? And I called him back, and I says, tell me what the problem is. He says, well, I'm trying to do this. And I went, okay, I think I might be able to solve that problem. He said, well, I went into your software, and I said I used some kind of hexadecimal thing, and I stripped out the original password, and now the file's corrupted. And I said... <laughs> I said, you did back it up before you did, th did this. And he went, uh, no. Oh, no. And I went, I'm sorry, but you are completely and utterly screwed. Unless you can find a backup that we can go back into and pull the data out, you are screwed. And, you know, what I tell people to do, and this is a simple piece of advice, A, back it up, but every once in a while... Go into your database and just export all the data from each table as a merge file. And at least you've got something that you can go back to if hell breaks out. 
And but it's just staggering how few people understand what you're talking about or use a file that's been damaged and they've recovered it 50 times and they think it's all going to work out well. Yes. So a few things I would say. So one of the issues that I, I wish could be better addressed is like, you know, these days, any database that's worth anything, except my own private grocery shopping database, which is another story, it exists on a server, right? Like if it's yep. important enough, it's it's on a server. And so that makes backups you know, easy to do and, and do well, which is great. Um, but it makes file maintenance and recovery difficult to do. And, and so therefore it doesn't happen as much as I think it should. So for example, when FileMaker server first hosts a file, it examines the file, right? And Maybe you've seen this or, or other listeners um, where a database won't open on server, right? So you even you go into the server admin console and you try to open the file and it says opening, opening forever, and then it says closed again or whatever. You can even go into the command line and try to do it there. That means the file is has damage, right? And if it's enough damage, server won't even open it. But the interesting thing is, is that FileMaker server does that once. It does it when you when you first host the file. So if your server is just up and running um, and you don't either shut it down or shut the files down, corruption can creep into the file over time. And, and people will say to me, but wouldn't FileMaker server, you know, notice that? And I'm like, no, because it stops looking. <laughs> after it's hosted and then it's only like if something is so bad that it like crashes right then the whole thing comes down but um and so you know in terms of john mark to get to your point about like best practices and, and maintenance you know i suggest that and and the problem is like you can't, it's a manual kind of thing right that's when i say i wish this could be better addressed from a, a feature point of view so it could be more easily automated uh, and more people would do it. But you should run recover on recent backups of you can't and you can't run recover on a hosted file, right? That's also part of the problem. Um, or, or do really any kind of file maintenance. You can't save a you know a compacted copy or or any of that stuff. Um, and and so the solution to that is to examine recent backups as, as being, you know, representative of the file that's hosted. Like if you take one that was backed up last night, uh, the chances of significant recovery coming in in the last 12 hours is less than say the last, you know, 12 months. Um, and, uh, and to, to run a recover on, on those, those files my favorite one of my favorite features <laughs> this is going to be super geeky of FileMaker is the recover log mm -hmm. right so those of us who all of us here have been around FileMaker for so long there was a time when recover was just this scary black box right you ran recover and you crossed your fingers and you made your burnt offerings to the database gods and you waited for the message at the end <laughs> That either said, you know, uh, FileMaker found no errors or, you know, there, there were errors, right? Um, 
and you really had no way of knowing, you know, how, how extensive or what was what was damaged or, or not. Um, but, you know, ever since, I want to say FileMaker 9, maybe it was 10, um, 9, I think, there has been a recover log. And so I tell people all the time, run a recover. You can throw away the recovered file. Yeah. Right. And examine the log because it's quite verbose. You know, it, it, it tells you every step. It examines every library and every object in the library. Um, and it reports on its findings. Um, and then if you go down to the summary at the end of the log file, it tells you a little bit more than the, than the dialog box at the end of the process in terms of like how many blocks it examined and how many it saved and threw away and, um, and all of that kind of stuff. And if errors are reported, you can then, um, search the log file. Um, sounds yeah, like sounds there's a like party, a party going party on outside... Sure. Somebody. Yeah, don't worry. Yeah, Mike, it, need it, it won't record because I'll just cut this out. But it's um, in Spain, football is a big thing, and they're all celebrating a football game, and they hoop and holler and drive around and bash their horns. And I was like, "Fuck off!" <laughs> well, Americans do that too, not over yeah. soccer, but over American right. football. Um, so, uh, so the log file, right, is is a treasure trove of data um and you know because it it may find you know one small thing that it says it repaired and you can literally go look at that um you know or you know maybe there's uh one field especially if it's a calculated field you can just you know make trash it and recreate it if you have to um but it but it it gives you a, a lot of insight into um what it did. And, you know, to Michael's point, another big misunderstanding, I think, about recovery is that it does not examine record data at all. Just period. <laughs> Full stop. Right. It only looks at the structure and schema of a database. And sometimes it's the record, like the structure of the database is fine. Right. You run a recover on a clone and it reports no errors. Um, but then you open the file with data or like you go to a record and weird stuff starts, you know, question marks start showing up where there should be data or the thing just crashes. Um, and so, so there's really, you know, there's two sides uh, of the equation. There's the structure and schema of the database itself. And then there's your record data. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to do as in complex systems to export it all and import it all back in, but uh, but periodically exporting your your record data is a good idea, um, and saving clones and running recover on on that um, is uh, is a good way to you know just make sure that because sometimes like if the file is if the record data is is so bad you won't even be able to open the file. Um, you will be able to run a recover on it because run, recover runs on um, on a closed file, but people a lot of people don't. They think, oh, I ran recover. It said there was no problems. Like, yeah, but you have one hundred and twenty thousand records in here, and uh, one or two of them seem to be kind of wigged out, right? 
Um, so, so there's, there's that. And the other thing about running, uh, you know, periodically examining your backup files, uh, I'll tell a story and I love this. He was a great, great customer. He like got my gold star for like doing everything I told him, right? Not too many people do that. Uh, but you know, kind of an inexperienced developer, but, you know, I told him you have to back up your files. So he set up backup schedules, blah, 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 you know. And then he called me and he his database was corrupted. And he was trying to get to his backups. Well, turns out he had never he did all these backups. He never examined any of them. And uh, he was using a, a, a Mac and he had a permissions issue on the drive he was backing up to. And he had boatloads of 1K size files. There were no actual huh. backups because it couldn't write to the drive. And as the worst kind of silent error, like you wish the Mac OS would have said, hey, dude, you can't write to this. But it didn't. It wrote this 1K useless thing with the file name, right? And so he thought he had all of these backups and he had zip. It like... I'm still traumatized by that episode, but it's a, a negative object lesson, right? You can't just, you know, click the, you know, schedule backup and then think you're in the clear. Um, and so, you know, even if you just take a backup, you know, to, to run the recover on it, you'll certainly notice if you can't open the file, if the file is super small or super big compared to your production file, um, and like I said, that it just, it takes vigilance because there's no like automatic procedures in FileMaker server to do it, but it is totally worth it. And also, of course, you know, having so, offsite backups, I mean, you really just, you need to like love your backups. You can't just turn it on and forget about it. Well, when so, I'm Alexi, how many times have you gone into a client's office and seed a database called blah, blah, blah. Recovery. Oh, God. I can't even. Like, if I had a nickel for each of those, I'd be a rich woman. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, it, and, and my point is that, that recovery doesn't fix a file. Correct. It doesn't. It's, it's, supposed, it's supposed to get it openable so you can get the data out yeah, and put it, it into a backup that has never been corrupted. That's exactly that you've been, it. of course, examining like Lexi said. Yeah, that's exactly it, John. It's enough to right, get because, you to you open know, the file and get the tell data you out. The yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the log file, it will tell you. Like, I mean, FileMaker can be ruthless. If a field definition is so, you know, foobar, it will delete it. <laughs> And the right and the and and the log file will say it deleted this right. So you can have, uh, you know, entire things missing from a file which will then open. And if you think you're in the clear because your recover file opened, uh, John Mark, it's like here, you know, hip hip hooray. It's like I couldn't agree with that more. Would you like to? You guys like to hear a hysterical, funny story about user ignorance? <laughs> Always. So one day I get a call from an ISP billing client and she said, Oh, my invoices have gone. I'm, I don't know what to do. And I says, What do you mean all your invoices are gone? She says, They're all gone. I says, Well, how did they go? She said, I deleted them. <laughs> she said, I said, Wait a minute. You actually said 
that you were sure you wanted to do this three separate times before they were deleted? She said, uh, yes. <laughs> and I went, I'm afraid there's nothing I can do for you. Oh, dear. Users, <laughs> I, I, I have, uh, I'm going to say users, unfortunately, a lot of the a, time, they don't engage brain before the opening mouth. Go ahead, John. <laughs> so, so Alexi, when you do this periodic Hello? recovery on a backup and then open up the recovery log and take a look at it, what do you, uh, what do you, what do you look for? Because I've just recovered a brand new template that I created in FileMaker 19. Hello? Yeah. Hello. I think Michael's gone. No, I'm here. Hold okay. on for a second. We're going to stall here for a second. Michael. I'm here. Why you keep saying hello? I did hear, Michael, I did hear you drop out a little during the last thing you were just saying, but you seem to be back now, so. Okay, I'm back, and if, if necessary, I'll re-record it, so don't worry about it. So, let me start over on that one. Yeah. Uh, so, mm -hmm. <laughs> thanks, I appreciate the <laughs> yup. <laughs> um, so, as you're doing all these uh, recoveries periodically of your backups, and then opening up that recovery log, and you see a bunch of stuff in there, you know, for instance, I just took and made a brand new template, a contact template from FileMaker 19, recovered it, and there's a bunch of stuff that says recovering field city, and then parentheses it says three next to it. And then it's recovering field type seven. And there's all these what appear to be errors because most of them have zeros. How do you make sense? Can you give any kind of 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 methods for approaching the recovery log to see if there's anything wrong yeah so um it's uh, this can get tricky um because the the best thing to do is to is to literally just search for various words um and i should publish my list somewhere i can send it to you but you know things like damaged removed error you know there's a bunch of words where it says like this was damaged this was removed um although i did this once on a client file and they had at least a hundred fields that had the word mm. error in the field name and i was like i'm gonna kill you now um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that led me to like a list of reserved words that you should never use for field names if you ever want to recover the file and have any uh hope of uh of understanding uh what what happened um and because yeah most of the time uh it it will list you know like it does all of those things it recovers the field whether it needs recovering or not right then the question is like was there an error and what you'll see is right underneath is you'll see like a little indented line that's referring to the line above it of what it did Right. So it'll say like recovering field, blah, blah, blah. And then it'll say oh, this field was damaged. And then, you know, it's the one above. Right. So it can definitely be uh, a tedious process. Um, and and, you know, sometimes if you like in a production system, if you start to see a, a lot of those things, that's when I recommend you go back to your most recent clean clone uh, and try to import all of the data into it. You know, if you see one or two and it's pretty clear what happened, 
you can go test it for yourself, right? And make sure that, like, it seems like if it says it, try to fix it. Um, you can usually kind of test that for your for yourself. The other thing you'll see is in the summary, like if any blocks of the file were removed, the file was definitely damaged, right? There were things that FileMaker just couldn't put back into any place, and so it just tossed them. Um, and at that point, using a recovered file is uh, at your own risk. Absolutely. Right. I think the... So, yeah, it's. I was going to say, I think the biggest challenge for customers is to identify when and where their latest good clone of the schema and structure is. Uh, to your point, they don't take time to analyze it. So they wouldn't even know how far back to go before the corruption began, which becomes a witch hunt in a sense for the good, clean clone. And I think what most customers end up doing, uh, at least the ones that are out of our direct control, uh, they'll just live with it. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll analyze the file. They'll say, okay, no blocks are removed. And, you know, the choice is use the file at your own risk, to your point, or spend about a week, you know, going through every single backup with the hopes of finding a recovered version that recovers correctly. And then even then run the risk that this corruption has been there since they inherited the file or since, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, to the point where it becomes yeah, so impractical no, I, to even use it or to consider it, the expense and the damage going backwards is worse than the possibility of a recovered file not working correctly going forward. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, I have spent an entire day of billable hours examining two weeks worth of a client's right. backup files, right, because of exactly this problem and it gets to the first point i made that like you you need to be in in regular contact with your backups right because if you test your backups and run recover uh, like normally this only happens when there's a problem in the production mm. file people never think about their backups and and that's kind of like the horse is out of the barn and then you're closing the door right um and so you have no idea how, when the problem happened, you know, if you even have a clean backup, um, you know, you can, when the, uh, when you run a, a backup, you can have it make clones that that's helpful, right? That gives right. you, uh, you know, smaller files you can get at and, and easily, uh, easily examine. Um, but but yeah, so like like if you test your backups every week, then you know you have a much higher chance of saying, okay, the problem happened sometime within the yep. last week, right? And the time will vary. Like if it's a high transaction file, it's used by a lot of users, or if it's a low transaction file, you know, used by small subset of users, you know. So there's not like a hard and fast time. Like if it's your mission critical, we use this database every day. You better do it every week. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and and so that that really depends. But you know, the big takeaway is that if you wait until there's a problem, then there's a problem, and being able to fix it may be difficult, right. or even yeah. impossible. All good points. There is a, a nifty feature on the backup option that says verify backup. And although that's not as inclusive or as robust as a full recovery log that you'd get if you recovered a file, that has saved us a couple of times in a couple of situations where 
oh, all of a sudden the database isn't verifying because we run a verify every day on anybody that hosts with us. Uh, that's the night the nightly backup will do a verify. And I tell you what, that has really saved a couple of customers uh, a ton of fear and frustration. So, you know, yeah, that, that is absolutely worth mm-hmm. doing. My my only uh, nitpick with that feature is the name because it's the set like on the client side, it's called a consistency check. Right. <laughs> on the server, it's called a verify. It's like people get confused. I'm like, it's a consistency sure. check. Yeah. Right. And that's what it is. It's the same exact thing. And it's absolutely uh, worth doing, right? Because corruption can, so, you know, sometimes there's like an individual library or an object in that library, but there's also the logical structure of the data blocks of the file itself. And that's what a consistency check looks at. And it's, it's pretty fast and it's a it's a common, maybe even more common source of corruption uh, than the kind that affects like individual objects within a FileMaker database, like a library object. Um, and so, yeah, definitely uh, uh, two thumbs up for 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 Verify. I just wish they had the same name yeah. so people would understand. Could be that uh, consistency check might have been just too big for the server field, you know, in the listing of the admin concept. <laughs> Some guy just. Like, Isn't there a better word? I I tell people if they ever I tell people if they ever see the words consistency check, start panicking. (laughs) And call me. Yeah, like if it starts running one by itself, then yeah. Right? And that and that actually I mean I always Go ahead, Michael. Yeah. I mean I always keep a pristine backup of every solution that I work on and it's always the one that I've developed and I know has never crashed. And if worse comes to worse, I can pull the data out, even if I have to do it manually and get it into the new system. And all this, but uh, it is it is a problem. It really all, all is. All this talk of backups and verify, I think, brings me to a burning question that I have, and I want to make sure we get it in before we run out of time. And that is, what are your thoughts, Alexia, on the latest versions of FileMaker? Uh, specifically version 19 or above, FileMaker server in specifics. Uh, I, we have the privilege of seeing hundreds of servers run in the wild against every kind of situation. When you're a hosting company, you get to see it all firsthand. And yeah. I can tell you, and I'll raise my hand twice on this, to say that version 19.2 and potentially 19.3 is the best thing they've ever released from a server version uh, in terms of stability and performance. Um, just a lot of things fixed and resolved. And I just wanted to get, we wanted to get your opinion on your thoughts of the latest versions of server and or the product that they're delivering today. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of true of almost every version. Like I've, I have to say, I don't think I've ever, well, at least not in recent memory, uh, seen a version of server that I thought was inferior to the one before it. Um, you know, like they almost always fix some bugs and usually more than are introduced. Although I will say I was like, why, why, why? When they took away the log files, when they brought them back, I'm like, thank you. Um, it's like the log viewer was just so much more convenient, you know, and it's like, it almost felt punitive. Like, why'd you get rid of it? 
like what like what was the value right. add right um i did not understand that so you know so maybe i've been around too long and i'm, I'm a little cynical but it um cuz every version you know there's always the goal of fixing bugs and improving uh stability but i do agree with you i recently um had a, a client and actually they're on uh, 18, I believe it is, but we were testing something. So I got their, you know, their star power user who I work most closely with to install 19. And she was like, Whoa, <laughs> this is faster. Like all like same exact database, same network, same computer, same everything. Right. Um, literally like I was on zoom with her while she did the install <laughs> and then she opened the file Um and just as a user, she, and this database is just like, it's the least keto friendly database I've ever seen. It's got so much spaghetti in it. It's just, I did not write this right. database. I inherited it. So certain things are, are pretty non-performant and I'm always shocked that they put up with it. Um, and so, you know, it's ability to like improve even badly executed code. I was impressed by that. Um, the Linux version, you know, I it always feels like a Back to the Future mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. Like, does anyone besides me remember the five point yeah. five version of yeah. Linux? I do. I do. <laughs> it was the first thing I thought of. It's like, you know, I actually tried to sell that to people, and it never caught on. Um, but you know, I did a Google search for FileMaker server space, and. The first thing that showed up was FileMaker Server. The next thing was FileMaker Server 19. And the third thing that Google th thought to show me was FileMaker Server 19 Linux. Mm. So I thought, well, maybe this time I'll be wrong, you know, and and, and it, will, it, it will catch on. And I mean, you know, you, on the face of it, you'd say, well, a new platform like that just gives more options. It's always a good thing. My only hesitation is that there's no free lunch, right? Every minute of development that was spent making a Linux version was a minute of development not spent on, you know, fixing other bugs or adding other features. Um, and so I just hope it's worth the development effort because... But haven't they you know, gone it, full hog with Ubuntu? Which is the Linux new Linux server? Is that am I right in saying that? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean that 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 does seem to be the case, and it's just. I mean, you know, they. I hope that they know more about the marketplace than I do. Um, but you know, my long history with FileMaker slash Clarus and software world in general shows that that's not always. The case, so I just, I just don't know, you know, how important it's going to be in terms of, you know, expanding adoption, right? I think that would be the main reason, um, and I think, you know, the recent history has shown that lots of other things seem to be uh, more impactful in that area, you know, things like external authentication, encryption, you know, other things that that make FileMaker more IT credible have all had uh, a big impact in adoption. And, you know, I don't know, Mark, you're a hoster, yeah. right? Like, is, is Ubuntu, like, super important to well, you? Well, Linux in general, I think, is not as important to me personally, but I think it's important 
to FileMaker, the platform, in in much the same way that external authentication is um, nowadays. Uh, you know, back when the Linux version was first introduced, you know, cloud wasn't even a word. Um, virtual hosting, virtual servers wasn't even a word. People basically had to buy a server and you know put it in the server room. And back then, Linux was not necessarily your first choice unless you were at the enterprise level. So um, today, uh, a regular beginning developer could, in fact, start their own AWS account, get a Linux server, and install the version of Linux you know, for FileMaker, FileMaker server. So it's a lot more approachable than maybe it was when it was first introduced. And uh, yes, I actually believe... It, I believe that it's important to a smaller set of the market, but an important set of that market. And to call mm -hmm. yourself a platform that plays well with enterprise, probably one of the things you need to check on the list of checks, you know, bullets, is do I have a Linux version that can run in containers, that can run in a public cloud like AWS or Azure or any of those? Because, quite frankly, companies have that as part of their Minimum requirement, it must run in this platform because we can automate it. You know, containers allow you to automate it. So someone wants to be able to click yeah. a button, clone a server, click a button, and have it completely installed. Today on Windows, it's not really that easy to completely automate the procurement of a brand new FileMaker server. Um, the installation of FileMaker, the software, gets in the way of that complete automation. So I think Linux addresses that issue. And I think the lessons they learned by making FileMaker Cloud gave them the confidence to say, we've got it figured out on our end. Let's just deliver this to the marketplace. Right. Potentially. You know, I wasn't in on well, any of those conversations. Yeah, and I but, hope you're right, you know, yeah. because like, I, you know, um, A, it would, you know, I mean, expanding acceptance and the platform is, is good for everybody. And it would mean the development effort wasn't it wasn't in vain so you know it's like i think the the filemaker server 5.5 may be just one of like the best examples of all time of just being way out ahead of yourself right. um you know the world just wasn't yeah. ready yeah. for it uh, i mean just look at just do the math just subtract 5.5 from 19 yeah, and a, see how many a, versions right. you know it took to bring it back if you ask right? a typical it person and you say well if my emphasis is cloud first which they've boldly said cloud first Yes, then yeah. their yeah. next thing would be, well, then you better darn, darn well support Linux because Linux, yeah. there's no such yeah. thing as a enterprise app that really runs on Microsoft server as a web app. It's just, those two don't go, they, they don't correlate. Web apps work on Linux. The web works on Linux. Microsoft's, obviously Microsoft operating systems have their place and it's used in enterprise for all kinds of things. But when it comes to the web, Linux is where it's at. So I think that's where their cloud first means Linux. So we've got to do it. Yeah. Now, Rick Kalman, I think when right. he was first asked that question, hey, will there ever be a Linux version for us regular people and not just FileMaker Cloud? He basically was elusive on that. He didn't necessarily want to answer it. And at the time, it sounded like they weren't going to even go there. You know, So some philosophy changed along the way to say, yeah, what's good for us is good for you. So here it is. So. Well, that's like when Chris Krim used to tell people they didn't want <laughs> Right. Oh, yes. I remember those conversations. <laughs> like, not only are we not doing them, you don't yeah, want exactly. them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It was too much rope to hang yourself, and he wasn't going to go there. Right. Yeah. He was exactly. forced into making those script triggers, and uh, we're so happy that we have them now. Right. 
Well, yeah. To look how long it took him to come out. I mean, do you remember in tech support, Alexi, when it was 4.0, I think was coming out or had just come out. And then they said, Hey, what kind of script triggers would you want? And then what it FileMaker 10 is when they came out. I mean, it took, you know, yep, a decade. Exactly. Yeah, but and the how funniest long part was being take? told we didn't want them first. Like, first it's like you don't want them, then it's like we can't do that. Then it's like, oh, here it is. <laughs> but so much and, of that. And one little side note about the to, Linux version, know. I believe they. Sorry, it must have been a delay there, Michael. I was just going to say, um, speaking of Linux, the um, I lost my train of thought. Go ahead, Michael. Continue what you're saying. <laughs> Well, I was going to say that how long did it take FileMaker to allow us to insert a field into a, an existing tab order? <laughs> it had to have been 15 right. years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how difficult was that? <laughs> I mean, you'd think it was like brain dead. Yeah, let's do that. And so, um, I mean, look, we're always going to be frustrated with the way that things that we as developers see deem essential are not in FileMaker's emergency stuff. And there's never going to be a point where they will agree with us that what we want as developers doing most of the work for the for all their clients is more important than what they're doing. But, uh, you know, all credit to FileMaker, to Claris, they do an amazing job of providing an amazing product. It doesn't always work out the way we want it to. I still think that add-ons have got a lot of potential, but I'm completely unimpressed with the way they are now. But I can see that three to five years down the line, it'll be different. So you've got to start right. somewhere. So I think that brings us to some of our final questions here. And Alexi, we spent a lot of time talking about um, all the way through Claris, but You've left Claris, and now you're doing your own thing. And I would love to hear, are you working strictly as a solopreneur? Are you working with other partners? What's a day in the life for Alexi these days? Yeah, so um, uh, I do do my own thing, but I also am working with Beeswax, which is a, a FileMaker Claris right. partner. Um uh, doing some technical project management, which I did a bunch of for iSolutions when I first left uh, FileMaker. Um, but mostly I'm doing development these days and, and really kind of enjoying that. Although I, I, I enjoy the, the technical project management when it comes up. And, you know, on some projects, I really inevitably end up doing both which is to say a lot of client communication and needs analysis and requirements development and even project estimating and all of the stuff that some developers don't like to touch mm -hmm. at all. But um, I, I really enjoy working closely with clients. You know, like I said earlier, that was like the one, you know, slight misgiving I kind of had about my job at FileMaker was, you know, I would, fly in, you know, with my superwoman cape and give them a great demo and tell them how to fix their problem. And then I'd fly away. Right. Uh, and now I get. Oh, Alexi, 
Wonder Woman doesn't uh-huh. have a cape. Oh, you're right. Okay. Supergirl. She didn't say Wonder Woman, John. She said Superwoman. <laughs> so she did. You're right. You're right. You're right. No, I'm, I'm my bad. Yeah. <laughs> Pay attention, Osborne. <laughs> it's always good to be up on your superheroes. Right. Um, and uh, I once did an hour-long workout in a super woman costume with a cape i did burpees wearing a cape okay so um i want video (laughs) i will have to show you a picture well actually first you have to meet alexi before you can actually get videos well it's gonna be it's gonna be kind of hard because she's stuck in a house and i'm stuck in spain but alexi if you ever decide to come to spain you do come and look me up absolutely uh, same and San Francisco's now open after 15 months of complete lockdown. So you can come here. You don't even have to wear a mask if you're vaccinated. No, I'm not getting on. I'm not getting on a plane ever, ever, ever wow. again. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <a statement> huh? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, if I'm going anywhere, I'm going by train. That's it. So, Alexi, if if you could look back on your career as it is today, all the way from the beginning to today. Um, is there any part of you that wishes you worked back in, in corporate America or do you love being a solopreneur doing your own thing? And as you reflect on that, uh, think about someone who might be starting their career as a first time developer, just out of college, let's say, and they're wondering, should I hang a shingle and be a solopreneur or should I go look for a job as an internal developer? Maybe you can reflect on maybe some of the pros and cons and what you prefer today. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, at this point in, in my career, now that I'm as old as dirt, um, I would be very, very picky about, I wouldn't rule it out, but I'd be very, very, very picky uh, about taking uh, any uh, job in, in corporate America. Um, but to somebody who was just starting out, I would suggest not just hanging up a shingle because I learned so much and benefited so much from working with other people. I mean, John, we're tech support. We were like always, there was someone walking into my cube or I was walking into someone else's cube, you know, you know, for uh, help. You ask uh, Darren Terry, who many of you probably know, claims that Jimmy Jones and I taught him everything he knows about FileMaker because he had the cube between us in tech support. And he's this tall, lanky guy, and his eyes would literally peer over the wall at me, he'd say, Alexi. (laughs) And then I'd know he had a question. But the point was, we were just learning from each other nonstop, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You could walk into Steve Karash's cube and just, like, talk to him about a calculation. His eyes would roll up into his head, he'd take a piece of scratch paper, and he'd write out the formula for you and just hand it to you. Right. And then you could go puzzle over it and figure out like, how did he do that? Right. Some people think that's a story, but Steve Karash actually would do that. And it would be something like, you know, uh, left open parentheses, left words, quote, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, two, you know, literally a bunch of, I mean, he did some work days formulas that I'm like, I I have trouble explaining Mm. when I do videos. Um, the guy was just crazy it, smart. It, it was just like that. Literally, I did that once and I went, I had this woman, I had her on the phone. She was great, you know, and smart. She was, you know, a customer with a problem. And so I had put her, I said, can I put you on hold? I put her on hold. I came back. I said, look, 
I have a solution and I'm going to give it to you, but I have one condition. And she's like, what's that? I'm like, you cannot ask me how this works. <laughs> I, said, I just, right, I just exactly. got it from the genius down the hall and I can verify that it works, but you know, she just laughed. Right. And sure enough. So, you know, there, especially for, for young developers, um, I, I really think that um, they have so much to gain. Um, and, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be, you know, an, an internal FileMaker developer job at a company they otherwise hate. You know, there's even, you know, partners like yourself, Mark, who hire juniors, sure. you know, and, and bring them up. Um, Richard Carlton has made a life career out of uh, hiring college grads and training mm -hmm. them up. Um, so I think that there's... Uh, there's really good opportunities and learn the lay of the land and uh, learn from other people. And then you'll have a much better sense of, you know, do you want to hang up your own shingle? You know, at this point I kind of have the best of both worlds. I get to work with other people. I get to do some solo projects when I want to. Um, but you know, I, I I've earned it. The school of hard knocks, I think Michael mentioned at the top of this interview. So uh. I, I did, I did, but there's also a fact that we've all got to take into consideration is that being an, a solopreneur or an entrepreneur is taking risks on a daily basis and putting everything and all your faith in your own abilities and your own resilience. And not everybody can do that. It's uh, a lot of people just can't take the pressure that you have to be able to take to run your own business. And if you can't take that pressure and you don't have the, the interpersonal skills to be able to present yourself and your ideas and sell and market, if you don't have those skills, then you're much better off working for a development company where somebody else does that. And I think this is one of the most important lessons that anybody can, can take is that if it's not within your abilities, it may not be within your abilities and you've got to accept it. At least not at first. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we all learn. I mean, I've been a solopreneur with FileMaker since the day I began. I mean, I did a short period of time where I was, working with one of the big consulting companies, but I want to be my own man. I don't want to be beholden to anybody. I don't want to be answering to anybody. I want to work and I'm willing to take the risk that that involves, but I'm somewhat unique in that sense. No, I, I, I agree with you, Michael. You have to be the right kind of person. You and I are both those type of people. Yep. Once I started working for myself, I never looked back. It was it opened up my life completely. And but it's not for everybody. No, definitely not. And here's the thing you got to remember about when you work for yourself. You work for a raging lunatic. <laughs> but at least at least you can get the lunatic to give you a day off when you right. want to. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I also say being a solopreneur doesn't necessarily mean you're your own boss. You still have customers who are ultimately the boss, and you have Uncle Sam who's a form of a boss. So yeah. it's not all rosy, you know. And you're also, you're also to some extent, Mark, you're, a, you're a, a slave to your employees. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially if you because practice you've got ser to, you've got servant to... leadership. Yeah. 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 
So no, Michael and I have the same viewpoints on this because we don't want anybody working for us. We don't want to manage anybody. We just want to do our thing. Uh, we're we're good working by ourselves. Yep. yep. I mean, and then that's it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I may a have other to, skill mm-hmm. set, right? And then you know, I may have I to cut this line out. <laughs> I may have to cut this line out, but the only asshole I want to work for is me. Okay. <laughs> so true. You were saying, Alexi, and you know, hiring and all, and managing employees, like if like Mark does that, and that's a whole skill unto to itself. Like part of why I love productive computing. Sorry, just shameless plug here, but you know, <laughs> thanks guys. I love it's like too. I think you guys like you hire in your Who own they? image because I'm like. All of these people are just like this. They're like so helpful and so knowledgeable, you know. And it's like, because normally, like, I find one person, mm-hmm. right? Like at an organization, it's like, oh, I'm just gonna like talk to that one person, right? So I have Francis. He's my hosting right. guy. But then there's this Jordan, and he just he's right there too, right? You know, and it's like so yeah. Awesome. But that's that's a whole other, and you know, I don't think there's any shame in it, right? Like you should do what you're good at and what you love to do. And it's such a varied skill set. Like I love the project management. I love the client interaction, which a bunch of developers don't. I love the development. I do not love marketing. And I just know that about myself. I'm old enough now. It's like, okay, that's like not the thing I love. Right. I don't like wake up in the morning saying, Oh, I want to start a marketing project. I wake up in the morning thinking about the database problem I was trying to solve the night before when I fell asleep on the keyboard of my laptop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. And in business, all the hats have to be worn by somebody, not necessarily you, but by somebody in order to have, you know, the full business. So, yeah. No. Yeah, for sure. I mean, between you and Keith, Mark, I mean, I'm sure that there are areas that, Keith does stuff that you that he's better at oh. than you, and that's part of delegating, you know, responsibilities. And it's also hard for many of us to trust other people to do those things. Trust comes into it in a huge factor. That's why it's difficult to find a partner in business and in life. Because you've got to trust that person implicitly. Right. And, and generally speaking, partnerships in business it don't always work. When they work and they work well, it, it's magic. But when they don't work, which is most of the time, it's a difficult, really difficult situation. So you either go at your, you're on your own and then you hope to trust everybody and find some key employee that can bridge the gap. But uh, there are more days than not that I say, you know, thank God for Keith, because we wouldn't have the business we have without him. And he probably says that occasionally about me as well. But for the most part, man, he does all the stuff I hate. And for whatever reason, he likes the stuff I hate. It just He really likes yeah. the stuff I hate. I always think of you guys as the Gershwin brothers, <laughs> right. right? So, you know, George Gershwin's fate, right? But he was called Mr. Music and Ira was called Mr. Uh, Lyrics, right? Yes. It's like... And it was like, that's what they did. Neither one of them tread on the other one's territory. They were both very good at what they yep. did. And together, they were genius. Yeah. If I start explaining a script to Keith, I, he literally will either fall asleep or he'll fake fake death. You know, he just, it's he's totally <laughs> bored. <laughs> 100% bored by, by my diatribe. That's <laughs> yeah, too funny. So. Yeah, it is. But I, I, 
Alexi, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad we got you on board, and I'm so glad I got a chance to finally meet you, even though it's virtually. And uh, thank you for coming along and sharing your stories with us. Oh, likewise. It's a pleasure. I, uh, I was slightly mortified. I don't know how it happened, but Mark's initial email wound up, I mean, I know people say this a lot, but it literally wound up in my spam folder. And so it was like maybe three days or something before I saw it. And I'm like, oh my God, an invitation to Fireside FileMaker. And it's been sitting. So I immediately like made Mark a VIP, you know, in my mail. So that wouldn't happen again. But I was like, you know, usually when you go in your junk folder, it's mm -hmm. junk and it's not something that was like what a great idea so i wrote back saying oh i'd love to do this uh and i was right it's been so much fun oh yeah absolutely some of the old stories some of the techno uh you know technology that you've been imparted to us has been it's yeah been a wonderful really great to catch up with you again alexi and and for all the people listening um really interesting to know what you've done through your whole life i mean it's what a, you had so many you had more stories than than most of our guests, actually, story after story after story. So thanks again for sharing all that. You're quite welcome. It's my pleasure. And uh, a big shout out out there to the rest of the FileMaker community, all of your listeners. Uh, it's it's a great community. I mean, it's part of why, a big part of why I've you know been happy to stick with it for all of these years. Well, that's why we're doing this podcast, Alexi. I mean, it started off as a conversation between John and I, and it was so so much fun that I thought we should do a podcast. And you're now, I think you're going to be our 47th episode, and we've got over 40,000 downloads, which wow. is astonishing, absolutely astonishing. And, and we've met so many interesting people and had so many interesting conversations, and uh, just keeps getting better and better. If only we could get rid of Osborne. <laughs> well, I was part of the initial equation. Come on now. <laughs> okay, you guys have been so well behaved for like yep. two and a half hours now, so it's all right. Yeah, well, <laughs> ain't, ain't gonna last. Well, when the podcast comes out, it's only going to be thirty minutes long. Right, it'll it'll mine every, too. All my stuff <laughs> right. out. So. Well, no, I like I thought I talked to two other guys. I but... don't even bother to import your track, John. Right, I, oh, I can man. see that. Well, thanks for everybody for listening, and thanks to Alexi for uh, spending a couple hours with us. It was it was great, and uh, you know, please leave comments at the bottom uh, if you want Alexi back to to finish up some of her stories. I have the feeling she didn't tell us all the stories. Then let us know if you like like Alexi, as I'm sure you will. Yeah, this is Mark from Productive Computing. Thanks, Alexi, for staying on. And I heard that you were doing some project management. If you're looking for Alexi's help on a particular project that you might be looking to do and you want some expert advice and or some management or some advanced technical skills and wherewithal, we'll possibly put her contact information here below the podcast. Yes, and that's a, a nod to my skating passion, for those who might be wondering. Skating is all about edges, which no people non-skaters don't really realize, but it's all about which edge of that blade you're on. So, And I'm Michael Rashad, and I've lived my entire life on the edge, and I'm signing off, and it has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Alexi. Thanks, John. Thanks, Mark. Take care. See you next week. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to Fireside Filemaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.